Welcome back to the Nutrition Unmeasured podcast. Uh, Well, you know what? This episode is again brought to you by my $5 nourishment guide. For just $5, you'll get 11 pages of lunch, breakfast, dinner, snack, and meal ideas in general for you and your family, as well as pantry and freezer staples, things that I love to always have in my my pantry and my freezer that I think would be a great idea um, just to help you meal plan and make meal prep a little bit easier. I'm not going to say easy, but easier. Before getting started today, I'd love to ask for a review if you're loving this podcast. Reviews only take a few seconds, and of course, they would really help me grow the listenership, and I just appreciate it so very much. So thank you. Updates since last time. Oh, man, it is definitely a new year. Uh, It has gotten very cold here in Ohio. I think I begged for winter way too long because uh, it's here uh, at about zero degrees slash nine degrees. I'm definitely feeling I'm, I'm feeling the winter, the cold, but also feeling incredibly dry this year. I will say everything about me is dry. My eyes are dry. My skin is dry. My hair is dry. I'm just craving the humidity, which as someone with curly, frizzy hair, I, I feel like I never say that. But you know what? That's that's how I'm feeling right now. Just very dry. Uh, the kids are doing well. Uh, you know, definitely it's hard in the winter when you have kids because it's it's hard to find things to do to keep them occupied that doesn't involve a screen. But we're we're doing our best to trying to get outside whenever we can, still trying to pick them up from school on foot. Uh, oh, I bought a new car. That was exciting. I finally got a car that uh, I actually hadn't purchased a car since Paige was born. So actually before Paige was born. So that was over nine years ago. So the car I had was 10 years old, which honestly, it was perfectly fine. But we found that we needed uh, maybe a little bit bigger car when we were taking road trips. And I just wanted a new car. You know, I was ready to have a, a car payment and do the the new car thing again. So uh, purchased a new car. Pretty excited about that. Otherwise, you know, things are just going. All right. I am so excited about today's episode. I was able to interview Julie Duffy Dillon, who actually before interviewing her, we realized we have some some things in common beyond just being dietitians in this uh, in this health at every size, body acceptance, uh, intuitive eating space. So we have a lot more in common. So that was fun to kind of t- talk with her uh, before interviewing because I've actually never met Julie. Uh, but I feel like we already know each other so well. So I'll tell you a little bit more about Julie. Her bio goes like this, and I love this. After sobbing in her boss's office 20 years ago, Julie Duffy Dillon taught her last diet. Once she saw the anti-fat bias and diet harm, she couldn't unsee it. She's a seasoned dietitian trained as a mental health counselor and podcast host of one of my favorite podcasts, Find Your Food Voice. Featured on TLC's My Big Fat Fabulous Life, Julie helps people with a complicated relationship with food, better access non-diet tools like intuitive eating, and strategize how to remove the shame and blame dumped on them from diet culture. Julie holds a a Master of Science degree in community counseling, is a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor. Learn more about Julie on her website, julieduffydillon.com, which I'll link to in the show notes, and the Find Your Food Voice book coming in 2025. As I mentioned, she has a, a podcast, Find Your Food Voice, which I'll link to, but a book, exciting, exciting, coming in 2025. I just can't believe that. I'm very excited for her. All right, let's go ahead and dive into the interview with Julie Duffy Dillon. 
I am so excited to have uh, my guest here today. I'm, uh, I've got Julie Duffy Dillon on the podcast. I, will, I feel like I'm like, talking to someone famous because I've been listening to her podcast for so long. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. You just made me feel all, all warm and fuzzy, but <laughs> I'm so glad to connect with you. Um, thanks for asking me on your show, Gina. Yeah. And before we got on, we realized we maybe have a lot of things directly. I mean, we have a lot of things in common, obviously, yeah. two dietitians in this space, but also indirectly in common. Uh, so that was a nice little conversation to have um, I agree. off the interview. Yeah. So speaking of that, let's do some icebreakers for the listeners. Uh, the questions that I always ask everyone that I interview. First one is, Julie, if you had just to name one food that was your all-time favorite, what would that be? French fries. French fries. Okay. <laughs> Great. I love a specific kind. The crinkle cut that um have like a crunch on the outside mm. and then a, a good amount of salt. If I can also have my favorite condiment mayonnaise with it, I would be so happy if you allowed me to include this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not <laughs> like you're on a deserted island, you can have three I things. <laughs> I take these things very seriously. Yeah. So. No, I love that. Okay. So you mm -hmm. would choose mayonnaise. Is that is that something that you grew up? I, I don't know. No. I, I don't. Okay. Where does the mayonnaise no. come from? Um, I just ended up, I never really liked ketchup. And then I started um, liking mayonnaise on sandwiches in high school. And then um, someone I went to college with ate mayonnaise and french fries. And she's like, it's very French. And I was, and my, this friend was cool. French is cool. And I was trying to, I was like, right on. This is really good. And it just has been with me ever since. The only exception is when I was pregnant with my daughter. I wanted nothing to do with mayonnaise and wanted all the ketchup all the time. And then as soon as I gave birth, no, never again. And my daughter also hates ketchup. So interesting. Kind of funny. Yeah. I, I sometimes wish my kids hated ketchup, uh, but they absolutely love it. So <laughs> I've never tried French fries with, with uh, mayonnaise. So maybe I'll have to give that a try sometime. Yeah. Especially if you like mayonnaise. It's really good. Yeah. But, all right. Now let me know. I will. All right. Next question. Last question. The, the best place that, you, that you've visited or your favorite, the favorite place that you've ever visited? Okay. So yes, I have a, a very specific spot. Um, and actually I can tell you like even the year, it was like 2010, I was lost in the Latin quarter of Paris. And like, this was before I had a cell phone or anything. So no one knew where I was. And I had an 18 month old at home and had never left her, which not that I was, mi I mean, I missed her, but it wasn't like I was homesick. It was just I remember like crying and being so happy that I was alone and like lost and it was so blissful. And I got this, um, some kind of crepe when I was lost and it was great. So that was my favorite place ever. Um, oh and my actually, gosh. When I went on that trip and came home, I told my daughter I would take her back when she was 16 and we are planning our trip for next year. Oh, And I can exciting. show her the same spot because <laughs> I know where it is now. What a great yep. story. Oh, she'll love that. Yeah. Yeah. It was Very a, great, nice. a great experience. I would love to get there one day. So fingers crossed. Yeah. Okay. So those were some, just a couple icebreakers to uh, get listeners to know you uh, maybe outside of your profession. Uh, but now we're going to dive into uh, the topic at hand, which is really I, PCOS um, and uh, I, I reached out to you and said I wanted to do a whole episode on... PCOS and intermittent fasting, but it's kind of morphed into just more about PCOS in general, but we're going to get to talk about intermittent fasting a bit too. But we're going to start with 
a little, just getting to know PCOS a little bit more because I think it's something that a lot of us don't really know much about. Uh, and, you know, I've been a dietitian for close to 20 years and I do feel like I'm hearing a lot more about PCOS. And this could be obviously very anecdotal, but how, well, first of all, is PCOS on the rise and, or is it just me? And how is it diagnosed and what is it? That's a, that's a lot of questions in one. Oh, I think I can, I can take care of that. Um, and I don't think it's you, you know, I don't think you're like, you know, overly aware of something or, you know, that your brain is not doing something appropriately because, yeah, we're hearing a lot more about PCOS and it's this endocrine disorder that was discovered in the 1920s, I believe. And um, the way it's been understood has been totally misunderstood and also like underdiagnosed, um, underappreciated. At this point, uh, there's, you know, it's at least one in 10 people with a uterus have PCOS. Some people say up to one in five. And um, the thing that makes it really kind of uh, this unusual experience for many people and what probably has also led to misdiagnosis opportunities is that the Rotterdam criteria to get diagnosed with it. And um, this is these like three sets of criteria. A person needs to meet two out of three in order to get diagnosed with it. And one is an absence or irregular ovulation. So with that pr particular criteria, that means people who are of menstruating age only can get diagnosed with it, which we know Learn. PCOS is something that's lifelong. So that's in itself not accurate, but it's just mm -hmm. the way that it's caught at this point or caught meaning like diagnosed. Sure. Um, <laughs> so the second criteria is um, signs, whether like clinically or through observation or, or assessment of higher androgen levels like testosterone. And the third one is evidence of um, polycystic ovaries, which is not even the accurate name of what they're seeing on um, internal, ops, uh, internal, um, what is the word? I'm, I'm missing it all, all of a sudden. Um, oh gosh. You know, the uh, ultrasound. Oh my gosh. Right, I, yeah. I've been like sitting at home writing. So my brain has not had a function in the talking way. So um, I mentioned though that PCOS or the polycystic ovaries on the ultrasound, it's not even actually what they are. It's immature follicles that are resulting that end up looking like a string of pearls and they just okay. call it the wrong thing. Um, so in order for someone to have um, this diagnosis, they have to meet two out of the three criteria. And so for many people, they have like a monthly bleed, but they never ovulate. So they don't get caught from that. You know, they don't get diagnosed because of that. Um, or they're just not, they're like either pre-puberty or postmenopausal, um, And the the androgens and then the, the ultrasound are the other ways that people can get diagnosed. But, you know, the way that we have started to appreciate PCOS is like not everyone looks the same, um, experiences the same symptoms. And that's because it is this endocrine disorder that starts in the brain and leads to this hormonal, hormonal imbalance and like a set of symptoms. But what symptoms a person gets is just going to be so different from person to person. So although a lot of people, they may get a diagnosis or maybe they Google it or they listen to like, maybe someone listening to this podcast is going to be like, oh my gosh, I totally have it. Um, but they may never really feel like for sure because this criteria is just so bananas and not for sure. So that ambiguous experience is there. And uh, with that all being said, I know you were like, is it on the rise? I think finally people with PCOS are feeling more um, um, powerful and like having a voice. 
and um, advocating and forming community because for so long, you know, the topic of anything with ovaries was just like, oh my gosh, talk about bleeding. What? No, we don't do that. So Mm -hmm. um, people now I think are feeling more like at home with that part of their body. And so they're able to talk about it and then meet other people with PCOS. So at the advocating efforts um, have finally started to pay off. Um, but it still is mostly underdiagnosed rather than overdiagnosed. Okay. I'm, I'm still thinking about what you said like two minutes ago about how, and I'm so embarrassed to admit this. I don't know why I've never been able to put together that you could have a period or bleed mm-hmm. without ovulating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you yeah. could still shed your uterine lining mm-hmm. without releasing an egg. I mean, I don't know why I never really, right? Is that, is that what you were saying? Sort of. So with PCOS, um, what's happening for many people who um, meet this type of criteria, (laughs) excuse me, what's happening with when people meet this kind of criteria is they're releasing um, many eggs um, and it's just not very, they're not mature um, eggs or they may not be viable if there's a chance of pregnancy. So for some people, they still bleed. Um, And the body can be just weird in that way too, right? It can just have its own kind of um, repetitive cycle because um, there's still hormones happening um, without actually having like one strong viable egg. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's one way people are missed. I mean, that's how some people don't even know they're pregnant too, right? Like sometimes people still have a, um, a cycle or what appears to be a cycle until mm-hmm. they're like, oh my gosh, I think I actually may be pregnant. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that's super helpful. I, I think that's really good information. But what so we know the, diagno- the the diagnostic tools. And yes, it would be nice to have like one biomarker to define someone uh-huh. as having PCOS. What are the symptoms? I, I talk to a lot of people with PCOS, so I've heard many, but can you just let listeners know what are the most common symptoms of PCOS? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, the symptoms that kind of fall into the Rotterdam criteria are obviously symptoms. So if you have irregular or absent periods, um, if you have signs of high antigens, like more facial hair than your friends, um, hair loss on your head, um, hair just all over your body more than you would expect, um, which is such a like ambiguous kind of way to, to share it, but it really, there's no exactness to it. But that may be a way to know that there is something um, going on with that could be PCOS. Some of the other types of experiences that are not part of the diagnostic criteria um, is extreme fatigue, mood disorders, and um, something you know you and me, Gina, we see a lot are these intense carb cravings. Mm-hmm. And um, for many people with PCOS, they are pushed to lose weight. And sometimes when they're not diagnosed with PCOS too, people are often pushed to lose weight or to like manage their weight. And so what a lot of people who have PCOS, and certainly if they're not diagnosed, this, this would happen too. If someone's trying to like eat less, but then they're getting these cravings, which we can talk about why that happens, but um, it just intensifies them. And for a lot of people, what ends up happening is this kind of like shame spiral of like, oh my gosh, I can't control these cravings. I must be weak. And so let me try harder. And so voila, some kind of eating disorder ends up evolving. And so an eating disorder is a really common um, co-experience with PCOS. And so if there's a clinician listening, I know a lot of clinicians listen to your show, um, if you are working with someone with an eating disorder or suspected eating disorder, you might as well just rule out PCOS. Like it's so common together. You might as well just rule it out. Mm-hmm. And um, I always would just ask my clients like, hey, has anyone ever said you have PCOS? Just want to rule it out. 
just it's easy to ask, you know, uh, because they do go together so much. Okay, so why? I, I, I'm sorry if I missed that. Why is it important? Okay. To, is it specifically why would it be? I mean, I know it's good to know if you have something like PCOS for various reasons, but I guess if you're working with someone with an eating disorder, why would that make make it specifically important to identify PCOS? I think that's such a great question. So eating disorders hurt everyone, right? Like anybody affected by yes. eating disorder is suffering. And dare I say, I think they hurt people with PCOS more. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> not to get into the, the Olympics of it, but um, having this endocrine disorder that leads to such painful experiences um, and eating disorder just makes it even more um, complicated and harder to treat and makes dieting even more harmful. So, but yet the dieting, as we'll probably unpack, is like how most people think that we should treat PCOS, but it just will make those intense carb cravings worse. It'll make the fatigue worse, which clinically what's happening is that insulin levels are going higher, inflammation markers are going higher. And so health is worsening and people are feeling worse. So yeah, just having that information, like whenever I would work with a new client with an eating disorder, if we would discover that there was PCOS it just helped um, clients to have a better understanding of their body. Like, oh, that's what's going on. That's why I have this like primal, like almost like animalistic kind of craving for some of these foods and um, and also some of these other symptoms they may be experiencing. And it just um, adding, you know, supplements and adding certain types of foods in can really significantly help you know, adding those in don't hurt people without PCOS, but they just seem to make even more of an impact. And what's kind of cool as a dietitian working with eating disorders, uh, when you can see this happening and, you know, helping people to understand like that they have PCOS and how that's in part of their eating disorder, they end up like recovering at a quicker pace. Um, it's definitely not easier, but like mm-hmm. figuring out what's behind those intense carb cravings is just such a, a game changer. Um, and helps to take the blame off the individual and instead like, oh, it's like this hormone thing and like how the world is just so messed up and it's like obsession with dieting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers your question, but yeah, I found it to be really helpful. No, it does. And even as I was asking, I do, I actually was I just had a new, a new client last week who has a history of an eating disorder and also has PCOS and just knowing that she has PCOS was actually was also helpful for me as a clinician. So as I asked her a question, I mean, I, I know the benefit of it. And it's funny too, I also, I because I remember learning this uh, on your podcast about the intense sugar cravings. I, I said that to her. I said, do you get intense sugar cravings? And she was like, yes. And I said, you know, that is that is part of the PCOS like paradigm. And she, it was like I had told her this. It, she, it's like she was so happy to hear that because yes. I think it was just validated all that she's experienced. Yeah, but, finally, you, you taught her something. Like, no clinician probably <laughs> has taught her anything about PCOS. And yeah, what a generous gift to give this person is like, oh, no, that's just your body's way of telling you that it has an unmet need and mm-hmm. it really wants you to pay attention to it. Right, exactly. Yeah. And and, and yeah, of course, we also hear so much... I, I'm tr- I'm jumping ahead now. Actually, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'm gonna sure. I'm gonna actually stick with the sh- with the intense sugar craving question because, uh-huh. yeah, to your point, the whole idea of telling someone to lose weight or to restrict nutrition or n- restrict calories, carbs, whatever it is, that can itself 
cause intense sugar cravings. But you're saying that people who have women who have PCOS are also more prone to them, irregardless of that side of the story. So what is it, I guess, um, like what is the mechanism there for the higher intensity sugar cravings? Is it because of the insulin resistance or is it other stuff going on? It's yes, it's all of that. (laughs) So the insulin is the biggest part of it. And um, cut me off if I'm unpacking it too much. But um, understanding how PCOS and insulin are um, involved with each other, I think is really important for anyone listening who has PCOS or just wants to know more about it. But because of PCOS's connection to um, like this endocrine disorder, one of the hormones that ends up um, not working like it's supposed to is insulin. And some researchers are thinking that there's a defect or a deficiency of a certain type of um, secondary messenger. And that basically ends up making re- insulin receptors broken and um, they can't like repair themselves. And so what the body does with PCOS when this is happening um, is it just releases more and more insulin. Um, and over time, what was kind of cool about that kind of setup is as the body releases more insulin, eventually the cell does get glucose for energy but there's just so much more insulin circulating. So when a person goes to the doctor and um, maybe is like, something's going off my body, I don't know what's going on, they may get their blood sugar tested or their A1C and it looks normal. But yet they are like, I'm tired all the time. My periods are irregular or really painful. And I have these intense cravings. If they can even notice that part as like outside of themselves, um, they may be experiencing and just thinking that they have no self-control or something. And what we know is when insulin levels are circulating to be that high to eventually compensate to bring down blood sugar, they also provoke intense cravings. You know, insulin is uh, a hormone that lets our body know it's like time to eat. And as it gets higher and higher, there's a panic that starts to go with it too. Um, There may even be some connection with anxiety and higher insulin levels too, uh, which I think makes sense, right? Like an evolutionary standpoint, if a person's not getting enough food, yeah, they should probably be anxious to go look for food. Um, and so, um, yeah, so yeah, that that's what happens with the insulin. But then the other part of it that are not always talked about with PCOS are two other hormones. One is testosterone. You know, that's a hormone that does have like an appetite stimulant kind of effect to it as well. So if someone has the most classic type of PCOS where they meet all three criteria, there you would have these like high circulating insulin levels along with higher androgens. And then the last one is cholecystokinin, which when was the last time you get, got to say that word? Or CCK. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm having a nightmare. I'm tra- tra- that's like traumatizing. Yeah, seriously. Yes. I have had to say it so many times now that I think I have cleared that trauma. But yes, I can totally like remember that. Um, but that's a hormone that kind of gives us that oomph after a, a very satisfying meal that's like, yes, we're full. Much and harder. that's out of whack too with PCOS up on time. So there's these this kind of like storm coming hormonally that will make intense cravings. But then if a person's also told to diet, especially cut out carbs and sugar, well, then that's just going to intensify everything and yes. make it so much worse. So, you know, part of it's physiology. Part of it is cultural experiences and and um, stigma that people are experiencing with PCOS that combine together to make these cravings just feel, again, like almost like a primal kind of um, urgency that just has to be met. Okay. This was so helpful. Good. So I, 
So this is this is good information. And I will say, like, I have only just begun working with women with PCOS. And actually, I'm very excited, Julie. I'm going to sign up for your uh, one-on-one hour-long like PCOS dedicated session like where I can just ask oh, you a we'll bunch have of so questions. Much fun. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very excited about that. But so I'm glad that you mentioned the insulin because I feel like when I when I look at information about PCOS and it talks about um, hormones being out of whack, it rarely talks about follicle stimulating hormone, mm-hmm. testosterone, but rarely do I see insulin being high. It just says insulin resistance. But then I see I, I see these women who don't have as I would what I would call based on blood sugar and A1C insulin resistance. But you're saying that maybe they have high insulin that is compensating for the insulin resistance. But that's also not good to have high insulin. Yes. Oh, I love this question so much. Can I just tell you how much I love this question? Yes, you can. <laughs> because um, it's like one of the most important ones, I think, for anyone advocating for themselves or someone else with PCOS, because yeah, the uh, fasting blood sugar and an A1C are the standard ways to kind of get a window into insulin. And especially for people with PCOS, and I would say anyone that has insulin resistance, it's not the best way to measure insulin. And getting an insulin lab done, first of all, like it can be very expensive. And um, a fasting insulin is really just an average of a person's insulin over the last three weeks. It's not like fasting sugar or blood sugar, you know? Um, So, um, and like I said before, because um, an A1C is really not going to show insulin levels because someone just has so much extra insulin, what you really want to measure is like how much insulin does the body need to release in order to normalize blood sugar? And there is a blood test for that. It is called, um, it's in a bunch of initials. So let me know it's not clear, but it's HOMA uh, hyphen IR. And the IR stands for insulin resistance. And honestly, the, the the trend right now is just to call it an IR test. I've seen lately on like lab core forms and stuff like that. And it takes that fasting insulin and it takes the fasting blood sugar and it puts it through a, an equation to show how much insulin a person needs to make in order to normalize blood sugar. And that is a test I, if I could choose many things like socialized medicine, you know, like there's a lot of things I would choose. But one of them I would also choose is everyone with PCOS gets a home IR IR test every single year because then you'd have a baseline and you could see it, you could track it to see how it's going. Um, And that is going to be so much more intel into your own um, PCOS more than A1C ever will be. Okay. Because it basically catches it before it moves into type 2 diabetes. You know, it, sh- it would show the trend. Okay. That is, that's really good information. I, isn't it crazy how we have to advocate for ourselves? Like, I mean, I, I've done this before with my doctor. Like, I, can I please get XYZ test, you know, mm-hmm. sp- specifically for my, I wanted to know my particle size for my cholesterol. And she just looked yeah. at me like I was crazy. I'm like, why I and it's not because it wasn't out of the blue I have I have heart disease in my family my cholesterol is very high I'm like she just looks at me and she just assumes because I am a you know small-bodied able-bodied white woman that I should be fine and I'm young and that's that's how I think and I'm like no 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 but I'm advocating for myself I want to I want to dig deeper I there I I don't know I'm whoa I'm going off way on a tangent but yeah this is important yeah because I think any all of us advocating for this it helps everyone yeah exactly exactly okay so let's go in then to I was going to ask a question about 
you know, when I was in school, I don't remember learning much about PCOS, but I do remember one thing in particular, and that was that the advice was just to lose weight. And I think, I think we, would you say that, I mean, talk, doctors are still giving this advice to yeah. women with PCOS. I mean, I hear it all the time. Is that advice based on the insulin resistance? But what is that advice based on? Or is that just because we are live in a fat phobic society where that's just the advice for everything? I mean, where does this advice come from? <laughs> I think <laughs> it's all of those things. Yes. And if you had the Krauss book like I did in your undergrad, yes, like, of course, the, like the, it's just like a little tiny paragraph on PCOS. And it's like, yeah, treat it like diabetes and help them lose weight. Yeah. Why this is like this advice is happening still 20 years later is um, because... Uh, PCOS is so under-researched. It's also evidence, I think, of misogyny and that, you know, just making the assumption, oh, just lose weight, that'll treat it. <laughs> and yeah, like over and over and over and over again in research, it shows that like weight loss does not treat it, nor do we have any diet that actually shows long-term research uh, weight loss for PCOS. <laughs> um, um, I think it's also um, because of the anti-fat bias within the medical community. They're just so married to that. Yeah. Um, push for weight loss that they can't imagine someone in a higher weight body actually treating their condition without changing the body size. And that's where that's where, again, I'm like, just dieting. It's so um, harmful for people with PCOS. It hurts everybody. But because of the push for weight loss, it just, again, it makes insulin and inflammation higher in the long term. So it's even more destructive for people with this type of condition. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's a lot of systems things. It's also um, a poor understanding of the condition, and we don't even have like an FDA approved medication for PCOS, and yeah. we've known about it for a hundred years now. Um, so um, I think if we could start there, maybe like having some kind of um, research where that you know we have some medication that could be a good option um, may help move away from just pushing dieting. But yeah, I'm um, my breath. Yeah, to be continued, hopefully. Yeah, TBD for sure. Okay. Okay, let's move into what I really wanted to, the whole reason I reached out to you was because I yes. had clients in the past and this is, honestly, this is intermittent fasting. Okay, it's it's still, I don't know how, but it is still something that so many people are doing and talking about. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I literally hear about it daily from people that I, I see one-on-one. And... I guess I would, would really like you to speak to, because you mentioned insulin resistance as a symptom of PCOS, uh, or I guess, is it the chicken or the egg? I mean, the, no, I, I'm not going to get into that, but it's a symptom of PCOS. It doesn't <laughs> cause know, the PCOS. Worry. Yeah, I guess we yeah. don't know. Yeah. Okay. So some research supports that intermittent fasting can lower fasting blood sugar levels. And now this is not like I wouldn't say great research because there really isn't that much research out there at all. Um, so I think, but I think even just that right there entices some people with especially PCOS or even diabetes um, to do intermittent fasting. So for you, as someone who has worked with people who have P- PCOS for years now, I guess first, what are your thoughts on, on intermittent fasting? Is it helpful? And would it would any would it help would it be helpful for anyone like do you ever recommend intuitive or um, intermittent fasting as an approach for PCOS 
Um, or even do you ever recommend just a low carb diet? And I know what your answer is going to be. And I just want to hear it. <laughs> I mean, I know the answer. <laughs> and I think probably listeners already know too, but I want to hear it from you. Like, I guess maybe a better way to say it is why is intermittent fasting not a good idea? Yes. And even though you know my answer, it's not just because I'm like not looking at science. And so I'm going to throw to you in the chat um, a meta-analysis or an attempt to do a meta-analysis on um, intermittent fasting and PCOS. Because um, when we talked about doing this episode, I was like, let me look at the research. And I was expecting to spend hours and hours. <laughs> I didn't know. I did. <laughs> I did not have to look through very much. I was like, well, thanks. Now I can just go take a walk with my dog. <laughs> um, so, um, so we got intermittent fasting, you know, as a as a dietitian, just even plain old simple dietitian. I do not recommend um, because of my experience working with eating disorders. I was like, I've been working with people doing intermittent fasting for decades. And I can tell you, it does not promote health. <laughs> like, yeah. It destroys people's health and their relationships, their family, and can often be fatal. So I'm not going to recommend it. Um, considering the, um, some of the the theories behind it, and that's really what it is, um, it's like the theories that like time-restrained eating can help lower the release of, um, of insulin. And so then... Um, fatty acids could be used for energy and kind of going down a similar pathway, I think, that we did with keto. Um, maybe in a test tube that can do something. You know, I mean, sure. Like that, I feel like every diet has some kind of power when we look in a Petri dish. Thank God I took microbiology because I love these metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because like, yeah, we can look in a Petri dish or a test tube and see things changing. Um, and then maybe we could look at it, um, setting it for a month with a small group of people and maybe it changes blood sugar a little bit. But like, let's actually talk about the reality here. Like, are we expecting people to eat according to the clock in this way forever? And I think it's important to for someone who is wanting to um, do intermittent fasting or any new diet that maybe is going to be coming out after we record this, because there's always going to be a new one, is like, what... Shouldn't you have cons informed consent on like actually what this has been like? Like who has looked at this? And when we look at intermittent fasting and PCOS, um, again, there was this um, research study that started that um, wanted to do this huge meta-analysis. They looked at like 3,600 papers um, and they just had to be from peer-reviewed journals. They didn't have a lot of criteria um, and only one met the... Um, <laughs> the um the like recruitment requirement or whatever for the for this like meta analysis uh, okay. and it included um 40 people with PCOS and 20 were in the or I think yeah 20 were in their control group and um 20 were in the this like uh, time restrained eating and they were um, completing Ramadan so that's okay. like how they got this data mm -hmm. and what they found and you know, that's a month long. Um, and what they found, it had no significant difference in um, insulin, FSH, LH, testosterone. Um, and let's see, it had a small amount of effect on reducing cortisol. But what we also know about cortisol or any kind of inflammatory marker like uh, C-reactive protein is short-term data does show like every diet lowers those. But every diet so far that's been studied has shown that it causes higher inflammation markers. So I'm like, well, that doesn't really help me because yeah, True. in the short term, doing intermittent fasting may help someone's inflammation, which is important for PCOS if like you're trying to 
manage some symptoms and lessen symptoms. Um, so in the short term, maybe intermittent fasting does a little bit with your inflammation, but long term, it probably make it worse. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's a it's almost like its own template now. Like any new diet, I'm like, okay, let me go investigate. And I can't I have not had a diet yet that hasn't followed that same. It's almost like Mad Libs, like like the same. Not really Mad Libs because that would be even more fun. But yeah, it's like a template of like <laughs> this is every single time. It's like oh, short term it may show a little bit. Um, especially when we have a really small cohort of people we're studying. But then when we open it up and we do it longer, no, it doesn't do anything. And then if they do it for a really long time, it makes it worse. Right. So that's like diets. I don't know, summary. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yes. Thank you. You, We we can end everything now. We can end diet talk forever. Yes. So you mentioned cortisol and I'm glad you brought this up. And I'm not, hopefully I'm not putting you on the spot, but I have heard this about cortisol and intermittent fasting that I actually you mentioned that so what you the the study that you saw said that the cortisol levels actually did go down uh short term okay fairly significant I think it's okay okay (laughs) that's important to know and but long term I have heard the intermittent fasting yeah actually does increase our cortisol levels and I've heard that from actually people that I've worked with who said that their doctors actually tested their cortisol after being on intermittent fasting and it was higher yeah, um, but I think I've, I've, you know, I've also seen it in the literature. So that's uh, I think that's an important thing to make note of. So and it's not sustainable. I mean, yes, eating. Yeah, by the that's clock. the big. You're a human being. Like you are not a test tube. You are not just like your glucose or your insulin. Like you're actually a human being. And I think having to like using this this data to make these big projected kind of recommendations that. Oh, maybe can change a blood sugar a little bit. It's like forgetting like we're not just our physical health. We're also like all these other parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like we have relationships and emotions and a quality of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have sure. shit to do, excuse my language if it's not appropriate for your show, but we have a lot to do. So um, this, this is something that just like every other diet, intermittent fasting is one that doesn't coincide with like long-term benefits for like a whole person. Yeah, okay. Okay, great. Just what I just what I thought you would say, and and good, um, just good information to kind of back that up. So I appreciate that. Yeah. I I want to end. Well, I guess I've got two more questions. So the so one supplements. I get very caught up in the supplement. You said that there's yeah. no drug for PCOS, but okay. there are several supplements. What are the top two? Although people are often put on metformin for PCOS, but that's more okay. for the insulin resistance. That, that's not specific to PCOS. Well, it's not FDA approved for, for PCOS, but it is something that does significantly lower insulin mm-hmm. and also androgens. Okay. okay. And, and then oh. also like cholesterol and, you know, it can contribute to all of that. Ah, um, okay. And what about supplements? What are the top two or even one supplement that you recommend for those with PCOS? I'll talk fast because I'm going to give you two. Okay. Because <laughs> there's there's two that I recommend to everybody with PCOS to start with. And then there's there's more. Okay. Um, and I used to be anti-supplement for a long time because I think that's as a dietitian, especially when we went through our training, um, you know, we're like food first. Yes. But <laughs> what I found is like the those intense carb cravings and the fatigue um, were so um, painful that holding back on supplements was keeping my clients from like relief. Um, and so one supplement you probably have heard of is inositol. And when I was talking about before a, a defect or deficiency in inositols, or I think I may have said secondary messengers, but that's you did inositols. Okay. <laughs> um, and so yeah, there's probably a defect or deficiency going on of these 
these like um, messengers that act like WD-40 to like insulin receptors to, to repair them. So um, supplementing with PCOS, the thing that is just so fabulous is it's something that significantly impacts their insulin levels in just days. For, for my clients wow. that I would work with who had really high insulin levels um, and intense cravings, they would tell me after just a few days, a big difference. Um, and usually it's like three or four days where they will be like, I can just tell that I'm like satisfied after eating, um, that I'm not just going through all my pantry at three o'clock in the afternoon every day. So um, okay. there are two different types of inositols. I do just to like help with the the time limit. Um, I do have a blog post on my website. It's oh, julieduffydillon.com slash inositol. And it goes through the different types, some of the supplements that we recommend, but also like what to look for if you're finding other ones. Um, so that goes through all of that. And, um, you know, and inositol is something that's been really well studied in PCOS, diabetes, insulin resistance. I have insulin resistance and I take inositol too. Not many people ah, know that, but um, okay. I find it to be super helpful. Um, and it's helped my A1C and everything like that. Um, so the other one is omega-3. And again, with PCOS, insulin and inflammation are the two kind of like physiology p- parts that I find to be the most important to help to like lessen um, symptoms. And so omega-3s, um, in particular DHA, um, a type of omega-3, um, people with PCOS have been found to be um, lacking um, enough of that. And um, this is something that I, when I teach it to people, it takes a couple hours. So I obviously I don't have that much time. But inflammation levels get really high with PCOS because of the hormonal imbalance. Um, the body's just having to do so much extra work that it ends up having um, more kind of like leftover stuff every day. And the body's like trying to take out the trash every day. Not that you're trash, but like, you know, trying to take out the like <laughs> leftovers and it just can't keep up. That's why people with PCOS often talk about like painful fatigue. Um, and adding DHA and, and honestly uh, having omega-3 supplement with DHA is what I recommend because you also need um, the other ones too. But um, taking that after about four to six weeks, my clients will tell me, oh, I can tell like my self-talk's a little bit better. Um, I don't know about you, but I have had a ton of clients who are therapists, which happened to be my favorite because they are so self-aware of their self-talk. <laughs> yeah. And so that's what they would start to tell me, <laughs> which then I started asking my clients who weren't therapists, Hey, just look look out for this after about a month or two. Um, and then um, about three months to six months later, it will start to uh, repair like inflammation markers. And, you know, doing the inositol and omega-3 together for a lot of people with PCOS, it helps to lower their androgen levels, helps to lower their insulin, regulate their period, increase their fertility if they're wanting to do that. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's, wow. it's, it's my favorite like, by, um, I don't know, like my, my first package of like recommendations is like, is those two supplements and then make sure you're eating enough. Like those yeah. are the three things I want everyone with PCOS to do. Eat enough, and also tall, omega-3. Okay. You know, that's it. <laughs> now, when you say omega-3, and now you mentioned DHA, what about EPA? Is it, because you know- Yeah, that's the other, they, they still okay. need that too. Yeah. Okay. But there's just like a, I can't remember all the physiology. I was this one um, dietitian who's no longer alive. She trained me on a lot of this stuff. Okay. And she was such an endocrinology, but she would talk about how like the stores of DHA would just get wiped out with the type of like, especially like low carb eating. Ugh, yeah. And so needing to replace that first and foremost, but there still is the need for the EPA too, just okay. not as much as the DHA. 
And can you give certain amounts like inositol? How much? Omega-3, 500 milligrams, EPA, DHA combined? Like That's what comes to my mind. So um, 500 milligrams to 1,000 milligrams a day of DHA when it's in, and then there'll be more of the other stuff. But I always okay. I recommend a minimum of 500 milligrams a day of DHA. Oh, wow. That's okay. And so the thing that's tricky is that a lot of omega-3 supplements don't label how much DHA specifically is in there because they don't know which fish they're going to catch. And oh, they make the ew. label. Okay. I know. <laughs> so if you get an algae one, it's usually going to be more consistent. But even then, they're not going to know exact like what they're going to get. Um, okay. So you have to just like really, and if you're a clinician, you just have to help clients be able to like learn how to do that. Um, and then for inositols, um, it's 2,000. 50 milligrams twice a day. And um, on my that blog post I gave you, it goes into like, there's even a ratio of certain types of inositols too okay. that are important as well to help with um, the androgen levels and cardiovascular stuff. So um, yeah, so I hope that Great. answers that. Oh, it definitely more than answers that, Julie. I appreciate that. Okay. And it Love kind of- Yeah, I appreciate it. You're And you just kind of answered the last question. I was going to have you- wrap up with two of the most important tips you would give someone who's just being diagnosed. And it sounds yep. like you've already said that. Nourish your body, eat consistently, mm-hmm. inositol and DHA. Well, and also, can I add what I'm bonus? Yeah. Yes. Just like my mayonnaise. Like, don't diet. Like, mm-hmm. don't diet so you don't weight cycle because weight cycling is like so harmful to PCOS. So mm. yeah, make sure you're eating enough and do whatever you can to avoid dieting, mm. you know. That's good. That's a great way to wrap it up. Do anything you can to avoid diet culture. Run for the hills. Um, <laughs> Find yeah. your people that you can like recover with who also yeah. reject diets. And yeah, make sure you yeah. eat your snacks. Yeah. Great. Okay. Julie, is there anything else? I think that's all the questions I have. Is there anything else that... I don't know. You want to tell my listeners? Well, I guess, hey, where can listeners find you? I'll put all these links yeah. in my show notes. So since you're listening to a podcast, come over to mine. Mm-hmm. I have a podcast. It's for people with and without PCOS. So it's Find Your Food Voice. It used to be called Love Food. And it's for anyone with a complicated history of food. And um, so you can find me over anywhere you listen to podcasts. And then my website has lots of different things, Um The big thing I'm working on right now is the Find Your Food Voice Find Your Food Voice book, which will be out January of 2025. Wow. Congratulations. That's amazing. So excited. You have so no idea. What? <laughs> oh, I, I do have an idea. If someone if a, wanted me to write a book, I'd be thrilled. What What is the premise? I mean, obviously I know the premise, but like, is it, is it, like, tell me a little bit about the book. Yeah. So like the podcast, each chapter has a um, letter from um, someone who has a complicated history th- with food, who is wanting to like let go of the burden of like always thinking about food. Um, and it's applying kind of the the, the systems that I've used, um, intuitive eating and um, social determinants of health to help people to like stop like, blaming themselves for this kind of complicated history and um, be able to tease apart all that diet stuff that they've like had downloaded in their brain um, to be able to connect with like how they want to manage their eating. And even the word manage, it's not fit in my book. But just how they want to like relate to food, and you know, I call that finding your food voice. And yeah, um, so yeah, I'm about halfway done as of today. Like right before this call, I'm halfway done with it. So. Oh, fifty percent! Excellent! Congrats! That's great! Thank you. <laughs> 
All right, Julie. Well, thank you so much for being here and for your time. I appreciate it so much. It's been so much fun. And yeah, thank you. Thanks, Gina. I loved being on show. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Oh, that was so exciting for me. I will tell you, sometimes when, I, when I'm when i interviewing people, I feel like I'm interviewing movie stars or because I, I've been following her for so long. I feel like I know her so well, even though I've never met her. So talking with her, I was almost nervous with excitement, which is uh, so great. And I love interviews like that. I, I've, I've learned so much from Julie already just in that small interview. I've also decided to move forward and work with her as a supervisor. I always think it's good to get find good other dietitians or counselors or anyone in this in this space to, uh, you know, almost be like a mentor. And I have chosen Julie for that. So if you're interested um, in using her, again, there's more information on her website. Uh, yeah, so very exciting. I hope you really enjoyed that. Uh, that is it for today. I don't have a new product or recipe today to share with you. I just, I don't know, I just got lazy and didn't feel like coming up with one. Isn't that Hey, I'm being honest, right? So coming up on February 12th, I will be talking with Sally Kuzumchak about common food misunderstandings such as MSG, what's the deal? Until then, treat yourself with the respect you deserve, be the best friend you've always wanted, and reach out to me at any time on Instagram at nutritionunmeasured or via email at trustyourbodyrd at gmail.com. <laughs>